Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Please, if you have your Bibles, would you open them to Romans chapter 8? We have been, for a number of weeks, this will be the sixth week, working on Romans chapter 8, verses 28, 29, and 30. We're going to, I believe, wrap that up today. I want to begin by just reading those three verses again before we get into the teaching today. The preaching, Romans chapter 8, 28 to 30. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Paul wrote, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Three great verses that hold such incredible promise for every son and every daughter of God. And in those three great verses, there are included five great statements Five great statements that are for the sons and daughters of God. I'm going to just read them again, and I'm going to start with number two, go down to number five, and then jump up to the first statement that is really the greatest chief statement for which all of the others are supportive statements. Starting in verse 29, the second statement is this, that those God foreknew who He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Third statement, those God predestined He also called. Number four, those whom He called He also justified. Number five, those whom He justified He also glorified. All four of those profound, eternal statements are meant to validate the one great statement that it begins with in chapter 8, verse 28, and it's this statement here. That for those who love God, all things work together for good. Why? Because they have been called according to His purpose. The great truth of Romans chapter 8 is that nothing can ultimately end up bad for the sons and daughters of God. Oh, you can go through some bad stuff. You can go through some tough times. You can go through some deep valleys, some great pain. But ultimately, nothing, not any one thing is going to end up bad for the sons and the daughters of God. That is the promise of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. You see, on the final day, we're going to see with new eyes and we're going to be able to understand in growing measure throughout all of eternity how God in His superintendence, in His sovereign power, even the difficult and tragedies that came into our lives as sons and daughters of God that He fashioned and worked and crafted those to be things that ultimately ended up for our good. All of that doctrine is called, has been commonly called for a long period of time by theologians, the final perseverance of the saints. The final perseverance of the saints. That's kind of an academic term. It, it's referring to 
the security of the believer in their salvation. That if you are truly saved, you are secure in that salvation. That's the thrust of Romans chapter 8, 28, 29, and 30. It starts with the great promise that everything that comes to you as a son or a daughter of God, the Father is working out for your good, and that is proven by the fact that you've been called according to his purpose and have been foreknown or elected and predestined and justified and will eventually be glorified. Final perseverance of the saints that all of God's children are going to make it all the way to the end and spend eternity with Him. However, however, though that idea is communicated in a great many places in Scripture, a great many places, this being one of the most vivid and direct statements of it in Scripture. There are Scriptures, there are passages in the Word of God that upon reading them without looking deeply into them can look like on the surface they are contradicting that truth, that they are contradicting the final perseverance of the saints that they are calling into question whether whether or not a person can actually be saved, be regenerated, be justified, and then can at a later date become unregenerated, no longer justified, can come again under condemnation. There are passages that are used to try to teach the idea that that can actually happen. And so what I promised you last Sunday is that I was going to look at a few of those. I had the hopes of looking at about five or six of those that are the most commonly used. But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to look at two. I'm going to look deeply at two. And I believe that it could be... um, It could be argued well that these two verses that we're going to look at, these two passages that we are going to look at, have caused more consternation in sons and daughters of God than any other two verses in Scripture. It has caused them to wonder. In fact, I believe that these two verses have been at times used by the enemy to bring great confusion and fear and certain aspects of bondage because of that fear through a misunderstanding of these two passages. So because of all of that, all of those reasons, I want to spend time to look very closely at these two passages of Scripture. See, what we must do when we hold to a position in Scripture as we grow and develop in our understanding, we need not just ignore the passages that seem to speak something different, but we need to examine them carefully, not to advance our proposition, but to truly see what the Word of God says and let the Word of God say what it says and believe what it says. And the passages that we are going to look at, these historically difficult or troublesome passages is in Hebrews chapter 6, and Hebrews chapter 10. So if you would open up to Hebrews chapter 6. This is a passage of Scripture that many use to teach the possibility that you can be regenerated, that you can be justified and then at a later time enter into a state of condemnation again, be unjustified. I do not believe that is true. I'm going to try to show you what I believe is a proper interpretation of these two passages. Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to first of all look at verses 4, 5, and 6. 
the writer of Hebrews, in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, writes this. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then having fallen away, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Some take the statement there in verse 6, referring, and then having fallen away to advance the idea that there is proof there that it is a potential to fall away. That you can be like those mentioned in verses 4 and 5, assuming them to be Christians, and then to fall away from that place of grace. So what I want to do is I want us to do a couple of different things here. I want us to look closely and carefully at the specific phrases that are used, the descriptive terms that are used in describing these people in verses 4, 5, and 6. That's the first thing that I want to do. And then secondly, I want us to look at context. Remember, context is king. Context is so radically important in understanding the Word of God. And so we're going to look at the immediate context of those three verses, and then we're going to draw back and look at the larger context of the letter of Hebrews itself. And I believe by the time that we are done, I'm going to give you a very good case that the individuals referred to in verses 4, 5, and 6 are in fact not Christians at all. They have an external evidence. They have some signs of being true Christians, but they are not truly saved. So let's look at these terms. First of all, it says in verse 6, in the case of those who, quote, have once been enlightened. When we read that term, it'd be pretty simple if we were quick to do it, to say, oh, there's a term referring to regeneration. Remember what regeneration is? Regeneration is when God comes to a person dead in sin, a person blind, a person that has no ability at all to respond to God. God comes to that person and regenerates them, means gives them life. Takes them from a state of death to a state of life so that now they can see and hear and understand what He is doing and saying to them. And then He gives them faith to believe along with that regeneration and grants them unto them repentance. It's all a part of that regenerating work. That we could look at that term, those who have once been enlightened, and assume that that is referring to regeneration, but it is not referring to regeneration. It does not say that. It is talking about these individuals coming under the light of the gospel. They have once been enlightened. You hear the gospel preached, the truth of the Word of God proclaimed, maybe proclaimed on a repetitive basis and being unsaved, you are coming, in a sense, into a state of enlightenment. The light is shining all around you. Second phrase, that they have tasted the heavenly gift. The word for tasted here in the Greek is acquainted with. Acquainted with. They have become acquainted with the heavenly gift. They have some level of experience with or familiarity with the heavenly gift. That's what the phrase means. It doesn't say that the heavenly gift is theirs, does it? No, it says they have tasted it. They have some level of acquaintance with it. Next phrase. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. Out of all the phrases, this is the diff most difficult phrase right here. What does it mean, shared in the Holy Spirit? We're going to spend a little bit of time unpacking that 
and giving some biblical evidence for it. The word shared here refers literally to one who, quote, goes along with. Shared, goes along with. So that this is saying those who go along with the Holy Spirit, they have some form of association with Him. So they go along with Him. Now here's a question. Is there any biblical evidence that that statement can be true of someone who is not saved, that they can go along with, in that sense, share in the Holy Spirit? I'm going to give you three men. First of all, the Old Testament. I'm going to give you two passages from the Old and two passages from the New. King Saul of the Old Testament. It is my conviction that King Saul, even though he was of the lineage of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, was not of the faith of Abraham. Read his story, and I think that'll come true to you. And yet, what does it say of King Saul? It says that he prophesied. There's a phrase in Scripture that refers to, isn't Saul among named with the prophets? And there was a specific story in which he prophesied the Spirit of God enabled him to prophesy. So well, maybe that's questionable whether he was saved or not saved. Okay, let's go to Balaam. Balaam was a diviner. He wasn't of the people of Israel. It was the king, I think it was the king of Moab that called this soothsayer, this man who practiced in Eastern religions to come to him and he said, I want you to go to the Israelite people that are camped out. I want you to look over them and I want you to, I want you to curse them. I want you to curse them. Use your power to curse them. So Balaam went on his errand from the king and when he got to a place where he could overlook Israel. You know what he did instead of curse them? He prophesied over them and blessed them in the prophecy. And that happened on more than one occasion. Here is a man that is a godless man, is a man full of avarice. If you read his story, you will see that. He was not in on the good graces of God. He was an evil man. And yet God spoke through him prophesied through him with the power of the Spirit over the people of Israel. Two examples from the Old Testament. Let's go to one in the New. How about Judas? The son of perdition. The betrayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who for 30 pieces of silver sold out the Lord and Master of life. What do we know about Judas? Jesus had the beginning of his three-year ministry. He had called 12 men to himself and appointed them, designating them apostles. Judas was one of those. At a later point in his ministry, Jesus got men together and he sent them out two by two and they were to go into the towns ahead of him where he was going to go and they were to go into those towns and proclaim the good news, preach the good news, and they were to heal the sick and they were to cast out demons. And they went out two by two and did what Jesus told them to do and they came back with these incredible reports of how even the demons submitted to them. That the power of the Spirit of God... Listen, you cannot prophesy and heal and cast out demons by any other power except the power of the Spirit of God. And there is every indication in Scripture that Judas was a part of that process just like the rest of those that Jesus sent out were a part of it. But we know Judas was never a believer. In fact, at the Last Supper, Jesus, without calling him by name, said, one of you is a devil. One of you is a devil. 
And yet, Judas was part and parcel to going along with the Spirit. Even being under the commission of Jesus in the ministry of the Spirit, some aspect of that was true of Him. There is not an indication at all. Matter of fact, if you go to the Last Supper, when Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, one of you here is going to betray me. Now, if Judas was obviously an outsider, what would the other 11 have said? Aha, we know who it is. It's right, that right there, it's Judas. It's Judas. That's not what they said. You know what they said? All of them said, is it I? Is it I? They didn't recognize any difference in Judas. I'm saying to you that externally he looked like just like everybody else. Then one story from the lips of Jesus, I believe, undeniably establishes the truth that I'm making here that a person who is not a believer can have some aspect of association or can go along with the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking about the final day and he paints a picture with his words of what's going to take place at the final day. And here is what he says, Matthew seven twenty one and 22, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Again, the only way a person can prophesy in the name of God that can cast out demons, can perform mighty miracles... That's certainly characteristics of the Spirit of God. And yet Jesus says to them, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus didn't say to them, wait a minute, you never did those things. That's a lie. No, he didn't say that. I take his silence to be an admission that yes, in fact, they had done those things. But what he says to them is, depart from me because I never knew you. He didn't say, I knew you at one time and then you fell. No, he said, I never knew you. Depart from me. Again, the point I'm making is that it is possible to go along with the Spirit without being filled with the Spirit, without having the Spirit dwelling in you. Here's the next phrase. Those who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, it's very possible to have an intellectual understanding of the Word of God. It's even possible to be able to recount, to verbalize the truth of the Gospel without being an individual that has been redeemed by the gospel. We just ask some of the great minds of higher criticism today that ridicule Christianity in Christ and do so with their public platform and their educational platform that they speak from, they can tell you the tenets of the gospel with head knowledge. And then the next phrase, the last phrase in Hebrews 6, that these individuals tasted the powers of the age to come. The age to come, that's the eternal age. That's the spiritual realm that they have tasted the power of the spiritual realm. That can certainly happen by mere association, by being around the things of the Spirit of God. 
You see, you know what? History even, history even proves this. I don't mean just the New Testament history. It's certainly true here. But what was happening here in the early church is that the Spirit of God was moving in power. And there were people in the midst of that revival that were drawn to that and they associated with it and they counted themselves as being a part of the true church and they were tasting the truth of the Word of God and tasting of the powers of the coming age and they were going along with the Spirit by association but never really saved. And down through history, when revival has broken out, that's always been the case. Always been the case. And what is found is that they last for a period of time and then guess what they do? They fall away. Just like the text says. Question is, why do they fall away? We're going to get to that in a minute. First of all, I want to take, we've looked at the phrases in Hebrews 6. Now I want to look at the immediate context. The immediate context. The verses that immediately follow this teaching. What the writer is going to do now is he's going to illustrate, he's going to use an illustration to expound upon the truth he was just talking about in verses 4, 5, and 6. Here's his illustration. Verses 7 and 8. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Here comes this illustration that is an expansion upon what he has just said. In Hebrews chapter 6, he's talking about, man, you should be teachers by this time. You, but you need to go back to the elementary things of the gospel. Then he uses this hypothetical situation of individuals that have experienced all these things and fallen away. They're like this illustration. And the illustration is there's two types of land. There's land that produces a crop, and then there's land that produces thorns and thistles that does not produce a crop, nothing useful to the master. Just like there are two types of land, there's two types of people. There are those that are truly saved, and what is the evidence always of those that are truly saved? They produce fruit, always. What is true of those who are not saved? They do not produce fruit ever. They may have some external signs associated with their life. It may look like for a while that they are, but the end of the story, ultimately what happens is they fall away and the proof is in the fact that they fall away they were never in because their life did not produce any fruit. That's exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. Notice something else about these two types of land that's going to further illustrate what I'm saying here about these people that associate with, that are a part of the church, that are a part of the visible body of Christ, that claim the name of Christ and Act like they are a part of the kingdom, but are not really. Look what it says about this land. Both the good land that produces the crop and those that produce the land that produces thorns and thistles, both drink in the rain from God. You see that in those two verses? Land that drinks up the rain. Some of it produces a crop useful to the master, and other Type, the other type produces thorns and thistles, both of them receiving the same thing from God. You see, that can happen in the church. There can be people in verbally, visually associated with the true church that are really not a part of the true church. They're receiving the same thing by association. They're around that outpouring of the Spirit of God, but never is fruit produced in their life. 
A tree is known by its fruit. That is exactly what the writer here is saying in Hebrews in agreement with the teaching of Jesus. But then the very next verse, the unfolding context, I believe definitively and authoritatively settles the issue that these are not true Christians. Look at verse 9. So he's used this hypothetical situation, then he's given this illustration of two types of land, and then he responds, no more hypothetically, but he begins to talk to the readers to whom his letter is addressed, and he says, though we speak in that this way, yet in your case, beloved, yet in your case, believers, we feel sure of better things, hyphen, things that belong to salvation. You see, true salvation has better things with it. True salvation does not have those who fall away, verse 6, but better things. True salvation does not have those who initially believe and then later have contempt for Jesus Christ, verse 6. You say, in your case, the writer says, I'm sure of better things, things that actually belong to salvation. Not that look like salvation, but that actually belong to salvation. I'm convinced of those things for you, he writes. Now we're going to pull back the context to the book just to validate and solidify the point that is being made. What is the book of Hebrews about? I'm just going to turn there and look at the page and thumb through Hebrews. The sections in your Bible that have little headings over them, those are not a part of the inspired word. They are divisions that were given so that you and I can look things up like the verses and the chapter headings. But those titles over different sections, those sections are called pericopes. Pericopes. And if I'm just glancing down at the pericopes in Hebrews, here are some of the things that I read. The supremacy of God's Son. Hebrews is about Jesus Christ being preeminent. Being unlike anything else. Then he starts chapter 2, warning against neglecting the great salvation that Jesus gives. Then he talks about Jesus being the founder of salvation. Then in chapter 3, he's talking about Jesus being greater than Moses. What came from Moses or through Moses? Anybody want to guess? The law, the Ten Commandments, the law, a thing that the Israelites held up as the great statement from God for life. And here the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is greater than Moses. He is greater than that. Goes on that Jesus is the great high priest. He's not a small case high priest. He is the great high priest. The once and for all high priest that offered the once and for all sacrifice. Chapter 8, he's the high priest of a better covenant than was the covenant under Moses or the covenant under David, covenant under the law. That Jesus and his sacrifice provided purification for sins eternally. Christ, chapter 10, Christ's sacrifice once for all. And then chapter 11, all about what you have to do is believe in Jesus because He is this great preeminent One, far superior to anything that has come before. He is the very God in the flesh that has made the way for man to be saved. And what you have to do is you have to believe in Him. Chapter 12, He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. He ultimately enables us to offer sacrifices pleasing to God. That's a rundown of Hebrews. So here's the point. Hebrews was written 
to a group of believers, many of whom in association were Jews. Jews who had come over to Christianity. And what they had done, history tells us this, is that they had associated themselves and claimed that they believed in the tenets of Christianity and became a part of the church, but then after a period of time, guess what they started doing? They started falling away. Meaning, they went back to Judaism. They went back to the law. They went back to trying to earn their own righteousness instead of relying upon Jesus, the preeminent once and for all sacrifice for man that you just have to believe in Him to be saved. They rejected that. They started going back to their empty religion of works. They were falling away. And when they did that, what was happening is that they were treating then Jesus with contempt, Hebrew chapter 6. It was an insult. They were rejecting what they, the grace they had been told in Jesus Christ. They were walking away from that, ridiculing that, treating him with contempt, and going back over here to the law of Moses and to the system of works, a righteousness by which they made themselves right with God. And so he writes in Hebrews chapter 6 saying, listen, You should be teachers by this time. But what you're doing is you have completely walked away from ground zero. You have walked away from the very thing that saves you. Therefore, Hebrews chapter 6. Let us... Verse 1, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. And he says there later, if people have fallen away from that, there's only one thing to tell them. There's only one thing. You've got to go right back to ground zero because they never really got it. If they walk away from that, They can't do anything over here beyond that if it's not built upon the fact of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That's the entire point of what he is saying here. He's trying to guard against them falling away from the faith. He's trying to establish them in a true saving faith instead of just an association with it, instead of just going along with it because there is incredible things happening and the power of God is breaking out and it's attracting many Jews and they're coming around and saying, yeah, I'm in, I believe. And then what happens is they fall away and they go back. They go back to their legalistic religion that is empty. Now, we've looked at the phrases in Hebrews 6. We've looked at the immediate context and as it unfolds and the larger context of the letter. Now go to Hebrews chapter 10. This second difficult passage in this opening phrase here has caused so much heart pain and Concern and at times fear and at times bondage from the enemy. Hebrews chapter 10, 26 and 27 writes, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Well, when that opening statement is read, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That can be scary, can't it? Anybody in here flat out has quit sinning? It can be a scary verse if it's not understood, if it's not kept in its context here. This verse 
is used by some to say, you see right here? This is saying that if you fall into gross sin or a sinful lifestyle, it causes that person, that the believer that does that to become unsaved, to become unregenerate, to become unjustified. But the problem with that is it doesn't say that here. It does not say that here. That is jumping to a conclusion that is not identified in the text. I want you to look very closely at what it says of how it describes the individuals in question. It says that they have received what? What? The knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the... Does it say they received the truth No, it says they received a knowledge of the truth. It doesn't say they received the truth. It doesn't say that the truth set them free. It says that they got a knowledge of the truth. There's a problem with knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. They had a knowledge of the truth. Then look at how the writer immediately goes back to this grand idea that's a part of the theme of the entire letter in the very next two verses, 28 and 29. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. He's using that as an example. They were Jews. They know all about that. But he's setting that up to say this. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Three things there. That these individuals can trample underfoot the Son of God. How do you do that? Here's how you do it. You come over here and you say, yes, I believe in what Jesus, I believe that His sacrifice is the only way that I can be saved. It's grace and grace alone. And you hang out there for a while and you proclaim that for a while. And then after a while you fall away and you come back over here and say, you know what? I kind of went beyond that. I've kind of, I've kind of put that behind me now. That's just, that's ridiculous. I'm over here with works again. I'm over here obeying to make myself right with God. That's profaning the name in the the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's counting it as ridicule. That's discounting it and insulting it. And profane the blood of the covenant. That's saying that the blood, you know what? That blood is not really needed. What I need to do is I need to obey religiously and to the letter, the law of Moses. I don't need the blood. I just need my own effort. What an insult. And it outrages the spirit of grace. They were over here saying, yeah, grace. Praise God for grace. Now they're over here saying, man, I can do it by works. I can do it by works. That's outrageous to the spirit of grace. You see, that's the context in both of these passages. It is individuals who were in the church visibly, who were going along with the things of the Spirit, who were around the light of the gospel, but they weren't really saved. They weren't really saved. This is just like the individuals that John talks about, the apostle talks about in 1 John 2.19. Listen to this. He says, talking about false prophets, false teachers, those who had claimed to be a part of the true church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. 1 John 2.19 For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are, they all are not of us. 
Did you hear what that says right there? How definitive that statement is? Just like the individuals in Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10 that have all these external statements about them, but the fact of the matter is they went out, they left, they fell away from the faith they had stated that they believed. But if they did fall away, if they did leave, The apostle says this, they were not really of us. If they left, here's what it means, they were not really of us. And then he makes it more definitive. He said, if they had been of us, what would they have done? What would they have done? They would have stayed. They would have continued with us. Here's the reality, folks. Ultimately, Ultimately, the proof of the Christian life is that you persevere to the end. That's the proof. That's the undeniable proof. That's the perseverance of the saints. You can hang around the church for a while. You can be associating yourself with the things of God and go along with the Holy Spirit and speak the language of But here's the question, is there fruit to your life? Because by their fruits, you will know them, Jesus said. And that's the same illustration that was given in Hebrews chapter 6. And those that are in for a while and are claiming the name of Christ for a while and then they walk away and they are no longer claiming the name of Christ and they're saying, I don't need the grace of God. I don't need the sacrifice of Christ. I can do this over here. I can practice in this religion over here. I can do these things over here. I'm okay over here without the grace of God and the blood of the covenant. They were never truly of the church. That is clearly what the Apostle John is saying. And the fact that they left, the fact that they fell away, is the proof that they were never in. Now, I'm going to close with this. Every one of those phrases that I looked at, five or six in Hebrews chapter 6 and the one in Hebrews chapter 10. There is a common thread to every one of those that'll make this even clearer. Let me state them again so that you can see the common denominator or common thread. It wasn't true light within them. It was only once enlightenment. It wasn't possession of the heavenly gift. It was just a taste. They weren't living temples of the Holy Spirit. They just went along with Him for a while. The Word of God wasn't written on their hearts. They had only tasted of its goodness. The Holy Spirit had not taken up residence within them. They had simply tasted of His power. And the truth of God didn't really have them. They only had a knowledge of it. Do you see, every one of those statements are limited statements. They are little partial statements. They are not the complete statements with which the New Testament always refers to two true Christians with things like justified, things like regenerated, things like saved and sanctified, will be glorified. None of those phrases are in Romans 6 and Romans 10. It's just these incomplete statements that show this external, visible connection that wasn't true. It was only skin deep. They had no heart change. It's like those that Jesus said, eventually, it's like the dog returning to its vomit. It's like the sow going back to the slop. You see, you can take the dog and clean it up. You can take the sow and clean it up and wash all the grime away, but it's still a sow. And it goes back. And it goes back because it's still a sow. 
What has to happen is a new life, a regeneration. And that is not what had happened in Hebrews chapter 4 in that hypothetical group of people or Hebrews chapter 10. So don't be concerned by these verses if you are truly a son or a daughter of God. They do not put your salvation in question, but do this. Examine yourself to see if you truly are in the faith. That's what you do need to do. We, that tension is in Scripture. The assurance of salvation is throughout Scripture, but we are also told to examine ourselves. I think that tension is very healthy for us so that we don't have a presumption in our Christian life. We don't kick back and slide into antinomianism and say, well, I can just keep on sinning because I'm in. No, no. examine yourself. And the proof will be this. If you persevere to the end, you're saved. The fact of the matter is, if you're saved, you will persevere to the end. But the proof will be, if you persevere to the end, then you're saved. Then you're saved. And your life will be producing a crop for its master as you live. Would you please stand? Father, take your word, that which was accurately communicated send it right to the heart let it do what you know it needs done trusting you for that if I've said anything that displeases you forgive me for that show me the truth where I'm in error but I am convinced that what I have said is just the unleashing of the truth that is plain in your word. Accomplish your will with it, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.